0: I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And It'll stay available for free till July 1st, and then I'm going to delete these podcasts. As well during this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread, and that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues, so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at manicmerch.com today. Chapter 8. Incubation, Flow States, and Retention After we're inspired, our ideas aren't always ready to perspire. Our minds usually need a bit of time to do further development so that when we're ready to perspire, it can pour out of us effectively. Where random ideas and sudden epiphanies really come from. Creativity is the residue of wasted time. Albert Einstein One of the worst parts of short articles, memes, and the rest of today's internet culture is that we rarely hear all the amazing details within these stories. The part of the story left on the cutting room floor is usually an idea was being tinkered with in the creator's head, both consciously and subconsciously, since it's pretty boring to show a person thinking in a movie. A great idea never comes to anyone that hasn't been doing some research. It's not possible to understand how to execute an idea unless you've been tinkering with related concepts. Even though we can't always trace where ideas come from, we know they don't come from the ether or the blessing of a muse. Ideas go through an incubation period where your mind isn't thinking about the idea you had in a way that's evident to you. Instead, your mind is toying with this idea in the background to make connections that can later lead to an epiphany. This semi-distracted state where you're partaking in menial tasks allows your mind to nurture your hunches into epiphanies. The apple falling on Newton's head when he discovered gravity was not some divine epiphany. It's a myth. Instead, he was tinkering with an insane breadth of work in physics, and this was the chance encounter that stimulated his connected mind. A famous case of this is Charles Darwin, talking as if he thought of his theory of evolution in a sudden epiphany. Historians studying Darwin later went through his journals to find he was slowly coming to this quote-unquote epiphany over months and months of research. The same went for Tim Berners-Lee when he invented what would become the World Wide Web. For 10 years, he was making concepts that were close to the hyperlinks and connectivity the web is built on. Most great ideas get developed over time. The idea for a great song may not be so great when you first build the skeleton, but with a few more great ideas, this could be a song that becomes your best work. Great work won't fall on top of your head just by chance. It involves development. How to get your brain into incubation mode. Graham Wallace's The Art of Thought made one of the first attempts to define how the creative process works. One point he made in the book is that usually a great idea has a lead-up to it. Then after the initial idea is formed, there's a subconscious period where the idea incubates and you finally see how to put it into practice. You shouldn't expect that once you get a great idea, it will be fully formed or immediately executable. Continuing to take in inspiration while tinkering with your ideas helps your mind develop these hunches into more realized ideas. You can even nurture the incubation of ideas by using a variety of techniques. Musicians are regularly accused of being lazy. My last book may have even done it a dozen times. But what looks like laziness is often incubation. To incubate ideas, the brain needs to be in a state that's not fully engaged while paying slight attention to another task. This is evidenced in University of California research, which found that engaging in simple external tasks that allow the mind to wander may facilitate creative problem solving. Many scientists believe the brain in an unconscious incubation mode can actually do more complex work than when you're consciously thinking about a creative work. This means taking a break when you get frustrated could give you the time you need to further develop an idea. Taking walks, exercising, commuting, and that odd state you're in when half awake in the morning or at night is when so many of the best ideas come out, since your brain is in a state where it can subconsciously nurture ideas. This semi-distracted mindset allows us to be engaged in enough thought to give our brain the resources to figure out the problems going on in our minds and later form an epiphany. A University of Central Lancashire study found doing boring activities such as attending meetings, commuting, or tedious writing exercises nurture divergent thinking. The bad news is video games and TV are too engaging for the brain to incubate. You can't force your brain to incubate a thought. All you can do is devote time to activities that encourage incubation while seeking out more inspiration that may nourish an epiphany. Conscious incubation. Incubation can also come in the form of consciously tinkering with ideas. A University of California study found that daydreaming allows your mind to go into incubation, which may give a clue as to why you see your favorite musicians staring into space all the time. It's said that Mozart was judged to be quiet and aloof, since he never had his attention in the room he was in. When reviewing Mozart's notebooks for his scores, he had dramatically fewer crossouts than the majority of composers, since he was constantly developing ideas in his head. In this day and age where we're constantly looking at our phones for entertainment, we should remember that the time we spend in a state of low attentiveness is the time where our minds could play with the ideas we've been accumulating to develop them into bigger ideas. In the age of constant distraction, it becomes less common to sit alone with your thoughts trying to connect things. Breaking the habit of looking at your phone anytime something isn't holding your attention can be crucial to the nurturing of good ideas since this practice can be effective for many artists. Flow states. An idea can be perspired once it has been inspired and incubated, and the most effective way to perspire is to enter a flow state. Ever since Mahali Sisolinsa Mahali wrote the book Flow, we've begun to understand This part of the creative process that's crucial to our own enjoyment as well as crafting great work. Flow is the state we get into where time seems to pass us by, as suddenly our inspiration seamlessly turns to perspiration, and by the time we realize what's going on, we have a portion of our work completed. It can often be known by other names like In The Zone, Losing Yourself, or In Another World. When we talk about playing music as an escape... Flow is the ultimate escape. There's a hidden gem in one of the most overly quoted parts of Steve Jobs' thought on creativity where he says, They feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. One of the strangest parts of flow is it runs right through us and we often can't figure out the details of how it happened. We lose track of time once we're in this state. We get inspired and take action, losing self-consciousness. Any concerns for aches in our bodies, identity, problems, bills, or conflict in our life disappears as we create with minimal friction. This is also what's so addicting about flow since it can make us leave our troubles behind as we evoke something new. What makes flow so special is we get our mind out of its way and push out amazing ideas or performances. Without these mental blocks, we could perspire and have epiphanies that help us hit creative heights. We're at our happiest in flow states. Neurologists have seen it's a happier place than playing with kids or on vacation. They see it as a theta state that's akin to monks meditating. Flow is a naturally occurring state for musicians during the creative process. The experience of flow comes in many forms. It could be writing lyrics onto a page where they seem to pour out, or jamming with your band to realize it's been 20 minutes when it felt like two. Sitting in front of your computer, experimenting with how to best tweak a song, improvising lyrics for a song while on loop, If you've ever fallen in love, you've probably experienced the flow state. It's that special feeling where all of a sudden perspiration pours out of you, where you can't stop expelling brilliant ideas, thoughts, or a great performance that you've never said before. You don't think about your next move. It simply comes out of you in a burst of perspiration. While flow isn't necessary to create, it allows us to do our best work. Sadly, in this day of flipping from app to app where attention deficit disorder is seen as a given by many, flow isn't as easy to achieve when you're constantly distracted or never able to sustain a thought for more than a few minutes. Even stranger is some musicians can easily achieve flow on stage but can rarely achieve it in the studio or vice versa. Understanding what goes into flow can help us get to these states of higher creativity. The Ingredients of Achieving Flow While flow is a naturally occurring state for our minds, you'll need to have a few boxes checked to achieve it. The more you're able to increase the amount of these elements at your disposal, the more flow will help you to create. Inspiration Just as we've discussed before, perspiration cannot happen without inspiration. Flow isn't a hack to get around this rule. Flow allows inspiration to perspire from you effectively and without resistance. Proficiency. To be able to get into a flow state, you can't get obstructed by your inability to carry out what your mind is trying to perspire. If you lack proficiency on the instrument or tool you're trying to create with, flow will cease as you struggle and become self-conscious. The struggle to get out what you're trying to do can halt flow as you try to figure out what you're trying to communicate. This is why flow comes easier with the more proficiency you gain on an instrument or tool. Limitation. While flow can go far beyond what we were initially inspired by, it can help to have focus. In music, having key and tempo restrictions, along with making the choice of which instrument you'll be using, allows flow to be more effective. Lack of distraction. When trying to get into these states, it's important to get in a distraction-free environment. The greatest killer to a flow state is a text message, knock on the door from a housemate, or social media notification. Designating a time where you won't be taken out of these states is imperative for getting to the state and can help sustain creative bursts. While distractions and breaks have their purpose in creativity, you should be as free of interruption as possible when trying to perspire. Collaborative flow. Flow can also be collaborative. If you've ever had a conversation where ideas perspire from you that you've never put into words, but you all of a sudden become funny or insightful, that's a collaborative flow. GM sessions regularly give us our best flow states. We're inspired by others to get into a flow state where we're able to feed off one another to create a new expression. In music, this collaborative flow is often in the form of improvisation. What we hear others doing is an immediate inspiration that can put us into a flow state. One of the biggest misconceptions of improvisation is the belief that it's solely made from new thoughts that come from flow and not rehearsed parts that are up our sleeve that we can deviate from and revisit. This also illustrates one of the most important aspects of flow. Usually flow takes a bit of incubation and rehearsal beforehand, just like any other part of good music improvisation needs to achieve an intent. By picturing how your intent would sound and elaborating on past ideas that apply to this emotion, improvisation reaches its greatest heights. It's usually helpful to prepare for flow by doing some rehearsal as well as premeditating on your intent. The trick with great improvisation is that it's usually pre-rehearsed ideas you've already thought of, but you're flowing with them utilizing an improvisation that takes them to greater heights. When a rapper freestyles, they're drawing from rhymes in their rhyme book while improvising a few aspects about the present location or foe they're up against, fitting these variables into some fixed tropes they've already rehearsed. When a jazz musician does this, they know modes, scales, and keys they must stay within, as well as a melodic line that's already been established that they can vary. These ideas are contemplated and practiced for years at a time. Notorious B.I.G. did not show up to that bodega and bedside and freestyle without first becoming proficient in tons of rhymes as well as practicing improvisation before the camera was rolling. Flow usually needs refinement in editing. Dance first, think later. It's the natural order. Samuel Beckett. There's a great myth in music about how magical the first take in the studio can be. The idea is that a musician sat down and played an amazing song on the first try. Yes, to a fan of the Grateful Dead, the idea of a first take jam sounds great, but there's also a reason their fan base is known for being stoned out of their minds. All joking aside, even the Grateful Dead would do countless takes of their songs and later add together the best bits of their recorded material. While flow can give us some of our best ideas, they usually need to be refined once the flow state has ceased. The key is to allow flow to occur for as long as possible and then edit it after it has ended. Since flow allows us to ignore self-doubt and criticism, it commonly needs further consideration after the state has left us. There were countless failed takes of Kinda Blue before Miles Davis got the right ones to put on the album. Contrary to the belief that editing takes in Pro Tools is cheating, the Beatles were doing the very same technique on their records along with nearly every other group since recordings switched from vinyl discs to tape. Harnessing flow and collecting the best bits has been the way to great music for half a century. Yet somehow some musicians frown on this as if first takes and a lack of editing are akin to winning some video game instead of viewing it as a tool to get the most emotional resonance. Making flow work optimally. There are a few best practices for flow that can make this state work more optimally. Notifications are distractions. The iPhone has a Do Not Disturb mode where all notifications cease, allowing only those you put on a list to call you in case of an emergency. For those who aren't concerned about contact from the outside world at all, airplane mode or turning your phone off works even better. Turning off Wi-Fi on your computer can also keep you from bad habits of switching away from your DAW. A Cleared Mind Flow only happens when you can focus and have passion, so it's less likely to occur unless the stress in your life has been dealt with. If you have trouble getting into flow, try cleaning up your mind by writing down your thoughts to retain whatever keeps popping up. Guard your space. Put a do not disturb sign on your door as well as let housemates know you're not to be disturbed until you come out. Too often flow is disturbed since others don't realize it's your priority. Isolation. Author Jonathan Franzen locks himself in a room with nothing on the walls and noise blocking headphones. The less distractions you have, the better. Always be recording. If you think you may enter a flow state, be sure to have a way to retain it. Too many musicians forget they should always be recording rehearsals and noting timestamps of parts to revisit. Meditate. Many people find meditation, more specifically transcendental meditation, to be helpful in getting deeper and more sustained flow states. Retaining Inspired Moments Inspiration is like fresh bread. When straight out of the oven, even if it's not made from the best material, it'll taste pretty amazing but if left around for a few hours, it'll be a little less flavorful. By the next day, it's pretty stale, and after a week, it's inedible. The longer you wait to capture your ideas, the more details they lose. For this book, I'd regularly take a note to write about a subject that could yield decent results, but if I wrote the passage the second I had the inspiration, it would flow out of me in full coherent detail. I found this to be the case with nearly every song I've worked on as well. Learning to capture an idea as it perspires is the most effective way to get the most from your inspiration. Every moment wasted wiring a dog or preparing a recorder can be small details of what your brain is trying to exude that can be lost forever. One of the most overlooked skills of creativity is retention. It's assumed that if there's a voice memo app on your phone and you remember to record your song ideas, you're a master of retention. Contrary to that assumption, mastering a few good practices can help make your output more potent and less stressful. When being creative, the most valuable asset is your ideas, but they're worthless if you don't remember them. Getting in good habits of retention not only makes sure you never lose your inspired moments, but it also helps make your creativity more potent. Unless you figure out how to remember the inspiration that's trying to get out of you effectively, that opportunity may never rear its head again, so that idea may never come to full fruition. When you're trying to remember ideas instead of retaining them properly, your mind is always trying to keep track of them. When your mind knows you've outsourced a way to keep track of parts of your life, it's able to focus elsewhere. It's been proven countless times that if you're storing ideas effectively, your brain frees up space it uses to remember them, allowing you to focus on new ideas that expedite development of what you're working on. If you feel cluttered in your thoughts, dumping the ideas for your mind could be an extremely effective way to gain clarity on your next move. Much in the way you check off items on your to-do list, putting the thoughts in your mind down on a list allows your mind to get past old ideas and devote brain power to new ones. It's sadly common that unless we experience the benefits of regularly retaining ideas, we don't believe they exist. Thankfully, since music costs so much to make, most of the ways you get better at retention cost little to no money and take very little time to implement. Along with the benefits being extremely worthwhile, practicing how to retain is time well spent. Perfection and Perspiring Have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. Salvador Dali. Author Kurt Vonnegut once said he feels like an armless, legless man with a crayon in his mouth when he writes, The beginning for any creator is an outline or broad strokes, not the consideration and nuance you'll hopefully apply later on. Skip the thoughts of syncopation, whether you should use an upstroke versus a downstroke, an accent, or apply vibrato. Instead, focus on an idea when it's flowing and leave the details for less inspired moments. While rules are meant to be broken, the most effective way to deal with the demoing process is to perspire, then edit. There are very few unanimous truths for creators, but one is that if good ideas are pouring out of your brain, capture them as fast as you can, not stopping until the inspiration well runs dry. Inspiration can come fast, so worrying if an element is perfect or even good enough can kill it fast. When first expelling an idea, we need to rid ourselves of thoughts of perfection or other judgments and only evaluate them after our inspiration has passed. Editing can slow the process by shifting the brain into a whole other headspace that could deplete that inspired perspiration. This is not to discount that if you realize the verse is better at half its length, you shouldn't make that edit in the moment. But make sure it's not at the sacrifice of any inspiration that may be currently in your head that'll be far less obvious at a later date. Don't worry where the song is going, just feel it and leave the contemplation for later. Figure out where you're creative to make it an environment to capture ideas. I've never been a very prolific person, so when creativity flows, it flows. I find myself scribbling on little notepads and pieces of loose paper, which results in a very small portion of my writings to ever show up in true form. Kurt Cobain Despite recording studios being the place designed to capture musical ideas, in many of them it takes far too much effort to get those ideas down as they're happening. When I'm working on a song, I always have a live microphone I can put in to record at the end of a DAW file if I need to remember ideas or grab a bit of inspiration. If need be, I'll write down anything else I can remember in the Notes app on my iPhone. Producer Mutt Lang, who's known for his work with ACDC, Def Leppard, and Shania Twain, would keep a cassette voice recorder in the control room so he could retain ideas as fast as he could since the trouble of getting ideas into the tape machine could take far too long. Thankfully, we all now have a voice recorder on our phone that can retain our best ideas easily. Many producers have a scrap MIDI track or another recorder always rolling in case someone has a fantastic idea for the same reason. Many artists have great ideas while going to bed at night, so they employ a way of capturing them. Grimes keeps a pen and paper by her bedside, whereas Ezra Kyra of Morning Glory takes it a step further by keeping a pen tied to his nightstand along with a notebook under his pillow. Others are flooded with inspiration in the morning, so they do morning journaling each day where they write down stream-of-consciousness thoughts that they review the next day to see what they can find to apply to their work. Always be rolling. There's a piece of recording engineer wisdom that you never let a performer do a practice take that isn't being recorded. Instead, you record them even if they're warming up. Since if they do a great take and you didn't record it, all of a sudden you're the worst person in the world, even if they told you not to record it. As an engineer, you may tell a musician they're practicing, but you're actually recording each take they do in case a great moment happens. This also goes for when you're recording yourself. In an age where storage costs are next to nothing, making sure you're always recording is essential to capturing your most inspired moments. Good note-taking. The faintest ink is better than the best memory. Chinese proverb. Listening back to your songs can be an amazing thrill, but forgetting to write down every tiny little detail you hear that could be accentuated, diminished, changed, and so on means these ideas may be forgotten and your song may never reach its peak. Writing illegible notes that are hard to decipher later on can cause you to miss crucial details you hear for years to come that you kick yourself over every time you listen. As a producer, I need to take notes on songs, mixes, and other ideas every day of my life. In some weeks, I'll take notes on over 40 songs. A lot of this time is spent in inconvenient environments such as hopping subways and buses across New York City. Needless to say, it can be hard to concentrate and even harder to take notes. Because of this, I have strict rules to make sure I never lose any thoughts that come to me while hearing these mixes. Whenever I'm listening to a song I'm working on, I must have a note app open to make clear notes that I'll remember later. If an idea is coming at me fast, I'll open music memos or voice memos on my phone to record a note, no matter how crazy I look singing a part on the L train. I know I must never lose inspiration since it may never come back. Being a good librarian Many songwriters write riffs and melody ideas, but never bring them to full demo form. Collecting the ideas as you have them is commonly done in iTunes or folders on a computer. Sadly, when I work with songwriters on drafting their songs, their riffs and beats are scattered across numerous devices and labeled horribly, so the songwriter can never seem to find them. There are a few easy practices that can help to sort these ideas. Label with more than just Voice Memo 19. Instead, put a descriptive term like Creepy Song for Neon Demon Opening Scene Key of E 148 BPM. Tempos or emotions can be great descriptors, as well as the key. When you're too tired to create, take time to make folders and organize these demos by tagging them to review, so your mind can incubate them. Date files if you'll remember a time when you wrote them when trying to find them. If you'll remember the place where you wrote them later, tag a file with that as well. I find dates are better since you can often remember what you were doing on a certain date compared to version 7. Spreadsheets. Rivers Cuomo of Weezer uses spreadsheets to keep track of riffs, lyrics, and song title ideas so he can figure out what fits together later. Since titles of songs are limited in information, spreadsheets can allow you to add more information that will help you sort through your ideas. Inboxing and Sorting David Allen's life-changing book, Getting Things Done, says that you should have an inbox that you capture ideas in to later file them in their proper place. When I work with musicians on their record, their iPhones are commonly cluttered messes of hundreds of voice memos with their ideas. This lack of order costs tons of time in lost and unsorted ideas. To make matters worse, they also have garage band demos as well as more developed Pro Tools demos scattered in different places. Instead of this clutter, I sort all these files to iTunes with playlists that file ideas by category. Having playlists for each song, final demos, riff ideas, etc. can help make your creative time far more effective. Common placing notebooks. I'm not one to celebrate the past, but one of the lost traditions of creative minds was to keep a common placing notebook. These notebooks are a place where you retain quotations and other points of inspiration throughout your life. Essentially, anything you feel resonance with that may be worthy of further thought or development is what you retain in one of these books. As you add these inspirational thoughts, you review them from time to time to put thoughts together to make epiphanies. John Locke, the economist and political theorist, was one of the first people to push this practice and later had notebooks manufactured to mimic the way he employed them in his creative pursuits. Composer Aaron Copeland said, Most composers have a notebook where they put down germinal ideas that occur to them thinking, Well, we'll work on that later. You can't pick the moment when you'll have ideas. It picks you, and you might be completely absorbed in another piece of work. You put the ideas down where you can find them later when you need to look for ideas, and they don't come easily. This summation of why this type of retention is important couldn't be summed up better. In the modern age, this could be a note on your phone, a Google Doc, or for the twee folks, a moleskin notebook where you keep track of what inspires you creatively. Later reviewing what inspires you is one of the clearest routes possible to inspiration that will put your mind into an incubation state and continually reward your music. I think about how much less I'd know about creativity if I hadn't had my mind open by watching Yodorowsky's Holy Mountain for the first time, which I wrote down in a small memo pad I carried in my pocket. Checklists retain what you don't want to forget. Atul Gawande wrote a life-changing book called The Checklist Manifesto that talks about saving lives with medical procedures that compensate for our inability to remember crucial details. Although this book is written about medicine, its application to the creative process is both broad and rewarding. Gawande says Rivers Cuomo of Weezer has developed checklists of considerations of songwriting tools. Many musicians notice they commonly forget details and considerations of the development of their song. In order to make sure they evaluate these considerations each time, they will employ a checklist at the end of their process to make sure no stone is left unturned. If you find yourself forgetting these details, employing a checklist can ensure they don't get skipped. I make lists in an app called Checklist Plus for for remembering to listen to my mixes on different devices with different perspectives, such as being sure I listened on three sets of speakers and listened for various elements. This ensures I don't skip crucial perspectives needed to make my mixes great. If you find yourself forgetting to consider your work in ways that are helpful, consider making a checklist so you can make those reflections. Chapter 9. Building a Better Album Building an album is probably the most conformist process that so-called non-conformist musicians blindly follow. They often study a record they love and say, Well, this record I love is a 12-song record, so we should have 12 songs on ours too. That may diminish down to 10 songs if they feel especially unambitious. This is not only lazy, but it hardly considers one of the biggest options in your palette, not to mention it being one of the largest statements in your musical output. When it's time to consider what I want to do with an album, I take a survey of my favorite albums to figure out what I actually enjoy in an album. The results of this exercise are usually surprising. When I first did it, my collaborators and I found a lot of patterns that didn't line up with what we thought we enjoyed in albums. For example, I thought 35 minutes was a perfect album length. Yet most of the albums I loved were between 45 and 50 minutes. Also, who knew I usually enjoyed a band's third album more than their first? With a little bit of thought and planning, you can make a record that represents who you are much better than a blind imitation of everyone else. I explored this practice thoroughly in both discussion and spreadsheet form on an episode of my podcast, Off the Record. If you want to go deeper, go to offtherecord.fm. Or visit the extras button on ProcessingCreativityBook.com for a link to this episode. Local act album development. There's a common practice in the world of musicians on how to build a record that goes something like this. Step one, someone writes a song at home. Step two, they bring it to their collaborators and finish writing it. Step three, they consider the song finished, and if it's not already recorded in their DAW, they record it, mixing it down until there's a releasable mix of it. Step four, they repeat this until there are enough songs they find worthy of release. Step five, release an album. Repeat. While this cycle is perfectly acceptable to the majority of musicians, there's a method that yields far better results. The parts that make up an album. Before we go forward, it's probably best to get a few terms straight. Bones. Melodies, lyrics, bridges, riffs, verses, choruses. Any part of a song that wouldn't be a complete song if you played it to someone. Skeleton. The beginning of a song. While this may be missing a bridge, syncopation, or well-thought-out drum fills, it has enough of a song's development to see the potential in it. Flesh or fleshing out. Flesh is the details of the song that make it better, but are the essential parts of it. These are syncopation tricks, production tricks, percussion, little inflections, etc. Demos. Compositions you've recorded down that you consider compositionally done, but haven't recorded in their final form yet. Beings. Songs that are mixed down. Album. Whether it's a four-song EP or a 22-song album, whatever you envision as what you'll put out that contains more than two songs. Quantity versus Quality Optimization. One of the most common dilemmas you'll encounter is if you write too many songs and your audience hears every idea you have, it inevitably leads to a lower quality musical output. But the idea that with increased quantity you get less quality is also a myth. This may be the case with what you release, but to actualize a great album, you need more material to choose from. In all of our lives, there's a finite amount of time. So if you imagine your time as a pie chart, whenever you devote time to one task, it takes away from the others. For most musicians, there's only a certain amount of time you can work on your songs, so spending that time wisely is imperative to birthing the best album possible. Therefore, optimizing this time can give you the chance to make better music. One of the most interesting processes of recording an LP is to see how much of the material isn't used. Many music fans don't realize that b-sides are commonly the unused songs that were recorded for an LP. No matter how masterful a producer or a musician is, some songs don't end up right for the LP they were intended to be a part of. Rick Rubin is famous for asking bands to write 2.5 records worth of material for each record they release. Meaning that if a band wants to make a 12-song record, he wants 30 songs so that he can trim down the material to the best songs an artist is capable of. He tells it this way, I'm very much of the school of recording more than less. And I always request that artists overwrite. Write as much as possible, and then we can narrow down, because you never really know. The output released on a record to the public diminishes if a group is unable to write 30 songs. With Black Sabbath, he had to alter his normally high input to get the best output possible, saying, They probably wrote more than 20, we probably recorded 16, and there are eight on the album. If you've ever heard the punk group Rancid, you can't imagine that they record 40-plus songs for a 20-song record when you hear the gravelly rage in their songs. However, that's a big part of crafting their records. Some groups can get away with just being aggressive, but Rancid knows their records are more about well-written songs, so to ensure they get the best out of them, they have a wide variety of songs to choose from. The same goes for The Cure, Bruce Springsteen, or any other classic group you see with an abundance of b-sides left over for box sets. It's helpful to record a few more songs that you'd want for a record, since some don't develop properly in the studio, or the direction of the record veers away from a few songs that are best left on the cutting room floor to keep a consistent trade across a record. As a record develops, it becomes clearer that some material isn't appropriate for the intent of the record. This is why a few songs will be recorded and mixed, but don't make it to the final record. Even if you plan to release a string of singles, it's best to get a few recorded before you release the first so you can strategically release them. While budgets don't usually allow for the excess of fully recording two records for every one you release, the idea can be accomplished by anyone. If you're trying to craft a great album, having as many song options is one of the most effective ways to raise your quality. Recording more songs that you'll release to their full fruition allows for better evaluation, and when constraints don't allow this, having skeletons or demos to evaluate and choose from helps to increase the quality of what you release. How many songs will you be trying to make great? Despite having more songs to choose from being a way to increase the quality of your output, we also have to factor in our limited time and attention assets. The most important consideration when planning a release is how many songs you'll release. With each added song you plan to record in a period, you'll need to develop them, which costs you both attention and time. If you have 20 songs to concentrate on making as good as possible, your attention is divided among all 20 of them, allowing less attention to each song's development. A four-song EP can allow extensive attention that's much more manageable. Developing songs can cost money, but your time and attention are just as important to allocate a budget towards. Many groups will decide to jump into making a full-length album before they know how much attention and proficiency they'll need to make an LP that they'll be happy with. Consider that your attention will be divided with each additional song you will be developing over a period of time, and that it reflects your ability not to be overwhelmed by the evaluation needed to make each song as good as possible. The high input, low output process. Derek Sivers has a saying that goes, ideas are a multiplier of execution. Meaning that if you have an amazing idea, it has a high value. So its worth depends on how you execute it. If you have a weak idea with a value of five and a weak execution with a value of 1,000, you end up with 5,000. A strong idea has a value of 20, and a strong execution has a value of 20,000, so you end up with 400,000. Once this is recognized, it's obvious you should only execute the best ideas you have. This means only bringing each idea to the optimal place to judge them, and then only executing on the best ideas. To get the results of the records you love on a small budget, we need to hack this process a bit. We first optimize the songwriting process by cutting away with unneeded time spent optimizing subpar material. The problem with the local band album development method is time wasted by developing subpar material. The first step in our quest to make an amazing album is to take your best bones and put them together with the parts that fit together. Bones can be a chord progression or a set of lyrics. The start of the process is jamming these together until there are a few skeletons. What does a bone look like? The first draft of everything is shit. Ernest Hemingway. A bone is the point where you've expressed your inspiration, having run out of any further ideas until a point later where it will be reconsidered. This can be a riff you played in a particularly inspired moment, or a fully fleshed out demo, or any part of the song from a riff on up to a fully developed verse or chorus. At some point, whether it's blanking or the need to bring in collaborators, we say, this is done, for now. We then choose to take it into another stage of further fleshing out. What a bone looks like in its true form is hard to say, but I think of it as the first finished incarnation of an idea whose potential could be understood by others to find other parts to build with. Skeletons aren't songs, they're the optimal form a song can be judged by. One of the common mistakes is to think skeletons are fully developed songs. The whole purpose of calling these parts a skeleton is that they're not yet a fully developed song or demo. The reason we call the forming of the rest of the song Fleshing Out is we're figuring out what the skin and other details of the skeleton will look like. They're the optimum amount of development a song needs so we can judge whether or not it's worthy of further time and attention. The skeleton is the most important part of a song that allows us to judge whether they'll be worthy of the effort to flesh out or be cut up and used for bones in another their incarnation later. For me, this is having a rhythm, bass, accompaniment, and melody part for both a verse and a chorus. The maiden details are in place, such as verse and chorus melody. The accompaniment part has a solid chord progression, and the groove is well considered. It'll have the elements to judge if this skeleton is strong enough to consider if it's a worthy candidate. A skeleton is often missing a bridge, syncopation parts, complicated transitions, harmonies, well-thought-out fills, or bells and whistles. All of that can happen when we feel like a skeleton is strong enough to be developed. Nearly every song could be stripped down to an accompaniment part and melody at its very core. Most commonly, the verse and chorus are what tell you if a song will amount to your best material. Musicians often get lost in the details and constructed soundscapes that make a song great, but the best songs have a great skeleton that, when stripped down to this bare-bones element, still excels at being a great song. If you begin to dissect the most progressive songs from Tame Impala, Jay Dilla, Aphex Twin, or any of your favorite adventurous artists, even if you took them down to just an acoustic guitar or piano and vocal, they would still be great songs. Even EDM4 bangers or the angriest punk songs can be boiled down to these bare elements to judge their potential. The same goes tenfold for songs in a standard pop format. While bells and whistles can help take songs to new levels, usually the ideas behind them can be applied to a variety of good songs. The interesting sonic landscapes, tricks, and details that help enhance the emotion of a song are often applied to subpar material, whereas if they were matched with a song with a stronger verse and chorus, they'd have reached a greater potential. It's not effective to waste countless hours writing bridges, Thinking about percussion parts, ear candy, and all sorts of other details on skeletons that should never be fleshed out into fully functioning beings. Any experienced producer will tell you great songs are the easiest to build off of. You can waste hours forcing great ideas on mediocre songs. Instead, focus on putting your best ideas with the songs that have a great basis to build off instead of wasting time, money, and ideas that could have been used on better songs. There are two sides to skeletons. To some extent, we have to be happy with them to move forward instead of pursuing another idea. On the other side, they usually suck. Most ideas need drafting to develop them into their full potential. In her brilliant book, Bird by Bird, Annie Lamott, Talks about shitty first drafts that don't often give you chills. But you need to get it out to start the consideration and development it takes to make something great. For each person, the definition of a skeleton differs since it depends on where they can judge a song properly. Figuring out this definition is crucial to optimizing your process. In pop music, there's a distinction between beat producers who write the music of a track and top line producers who work on the lyrics and melody of a song. Both of these parts can be skeletons since you may deem one part worthy of keeping and another worthy of abandoning. Forming Skeletons As you accumulate bones, you start to tinker with which of your best ideas may fit together in a resonant way. Putting various bones together, or taking one to develop further to form song skeletons, is how we get to the point where we can judge if a song was worth further execution. Songwriters use various methods to form a skeleton. Whether the inspiration comes in one sitting, or takes some tinkering, the possibilities are endless. But once we're satisfied with the main elements of the song, a skeleton is formed. Lady Gaga has said that she always starts with a chorus, since if that isn't great, you're fucked anyway. Other songwriters write down a turn of phrase they like and try to find what music goes with it. In time, it's easy to find how your mind works to form these skeletons. Reverse engineering down to the skeleton. One of the best production tricks used by countless producers is to reverse engineer the skeleton process. When a song comes in that isn't right, they strip it down to the skeleton to rebuild from there. This practice allows you to focus on the most important parts of the song before getting lost in counter melodies, harmonies, and other sonic trickery that can put makeup and good clothes on a skeleton that should have never been fleshed out. Choosing the best skeletons to flesh out. Just as Rick Rubin talked about earlier, I advise bands to cut 25% of their material before turning skeletons into demos and then another 25% of their material before entering the studio to turn them into beings. Optimizing these songs leaves you with an excess of material to develop and begin to see what's being shaped before cutting down to only the songs you'll record and potentially release. After collecting a handful of skeletons, it's time to figure out which of these have the best potential to become amazing songs that we turn into beings. If there are 24 to 36 good skeletons for a 12-song album, you can then choose half of them to devote your precious time to fleshing out to make as good as possible. The skeletons with the best potential to be a great song should be considered by their resonance, actualization, as well as any intent you have that would align with the release you have planned. The fleshing out is when we add bridges, syncopation, sonic trickery, and all the little details that help make a song exciting. It's devoting your attention to make a song great as a whole and apply every bit of detail you can so you have a clear skeleton to judge if it should be brought to life. Demos to Beings After the best skeletons have been fleshed out, it's time to demo them. The purpose of the demo is not only to listen back and react to what you hear, but to also do a demonstration of what a song will become for your own ears to evaluate if it should be brought to full fruition, enslaved over in the time-consuming recording process. Even if there's no cost to your demo processing, making mistakes and reacting to what can be better before the commitment of a final recording reaps huge rewards. Once our demo has been recorded, we evaluate this song and make sure it's worth the labor of recording, mixing, and mastering. If this is the case, it's time to do the final part of the process and record final takes and ideas that have been considered and actualized. Skeletons aren't dead forever. It should also be said that if you choose not to develop a skeleton or a bone further at this time, it doesn't mean they won't one day become a great song. One of the most liberating parts of creating for years is the realization that bones you wrote a decade earlier can be the crucial part that makes a new song come together. A skeleton is often missing one bone that's layered the missing piece to one of your best songs. Top songwriters like Stargate say they constantly put these skeletons on the back burner if the top line isn't working. Radiohead's A Moon-Shaped Pool contains the song True Love Waits, which they've been playing live regularly for 21 years in drastically different ways before putting it on a record. There's always a chance a song that's not right yet will have its day. This process could be tweaked to death. It's one of the most commonly used by musicians since the 70s to get the best of their material from album to album. Choose your own adventure and figure out what gets you the best result. Chapter 10. Drafting and Development There's a disconnect with musicians about what goes into actualizing great music, in that they're often scared to ruin their good ideas by exploring them further. The majority of musicians find the drafting, experimenting, and developing of ideas to be the most important part to achieve great work. The Beatles and Weezer are both known for doing 50 takes as well as alternate versions of a single song. Beethoven would write 70 different versions of the same phrase. Porter Robinson took 300 hours to make Years of War. Bjork says she spends 90% of her time editing the good ideas she receives from collaborators. This is not to say that every song that takes a long time is great, but to make great music, you need to dedicate yourself to an arduous process of experimentation to vet your ideas. Drafting is the process of gaining further resonance for your initial ideas. Figuring out how to elaborate is a skill that, if developed properly, leads to the best possible execution of your intent. While it could seem as easy as just working on them, there are countless techniques and lenses to look at each of your ideas through that can help enhance your songs. Drafting, over and over again. Just as research is often a dirty word to musicians, somehow for many songwriters, there's an idea that the first lyrics they write down are solid gold, so any refinement will surely mess them up. Writing a different set Googling, employing a thesaurus, or a rhyming dictionary to further their lyrical intent is asking too much of them. Unfortunately, it's much more rare that the first set of lyrics is the best possible choice compared to a bunch of considered revisions. On Mad Men, Don Draper would implore Peggy Olsen to write 25 different taglines for a product. And if you don't think this same process hasn't been used in every genre of music to make songs you love, you're mistaken. Listen to most of the great lyricists talk about their craft. It's not uncommon to write down 20 different ways of saying the same lyrical turn of phrase before choosing the one that works best. In clinical studies on creativity, when you ask people to free associate the color green, everyone says grass first. But when you get to the bottom 20% of what they come up with, there are much more creative ideas. This is also the case in music, as the first ideas you come up with are usually more obvious than those that come if you keep digging past the low-hanging fruit. Continuing to dig for an answer for even a few more minutes than usual can lead to a way better result. I regularly see musicians give up on improving their ideas the second the room goes silent and no one has a better idea. You should write excessively and then trim back to get better ideas since the excess is usually useful for other parts of your music. I tell lyricists I work with to have more lyrics than the song can hold, in case we need to add, substitute, or write a new counter melody. But what about option paralysis? If you do a lot of brainstorming, you start to learn what works for you as well as shortcuts to get the best ideas. You skip the obvious ideas to get to more interesting outcomes faster. Watch David Bowie's five years documentary, Jay-Z Fade to Black, or any of the documentaries on Metallica's recording process to see how they're adverse to stock or overdone ideas. They skip right past the obvious ideas, digging deeper to more advanced treatments like making the chorus quieter than the verse or having an intro hook that never happens again in the song. a part of a song feels like it can be improved, challenge yourself to develop ideas that squash your lack of comfort. Try committing to taking an hour for each song with a thesaurus or doing free word associations, figuring out other words and imagery that connotate what your heart's trying to convey. Pass your lyrics to someone else to get feedback on what could be done better. Try small variations on your riffs and beats to find what's optimal. These subtle drafting tweaks are how you find the resonance in a song. Are you drafting enough? On the podcast I host for Noise Creators, the most common complaint of the producers I interview is that when a group begins the recording process, they're on their second or third draft instead of their ninth. Sadly, the first draft may not even be done when bands walk into the studio to lay down a final version. All of these producers agree the work done before starting the recording process is far more important than any work done during recording. While many songs could suffer from too many ideas, far too many never even try to excel to find their limits to be edited back to an optimal level. I don't consider a song done until I have to hit mute on a track in the mix since we went too far having too many ideas on how to add resonance. Without going too far, you'll never know if you could have made a song even better. First instinct, best instinct. With all this analysis, I'm sure some of you have been wondering what to make of that your first idea is usually your best one. While not everyone feels that their first ideas are their best, it seems to be a common thread in musician land. There is cause for this. Some artists get in an emotionally resonant zone while creating a song, which is why they continue to develop it. Often they were in a specific emotional place, so when they try to elaborate on their demos, they don't feel the same. So subsequent drafts are thrown out, making the first idea the one that's kept. The other common reason for sticking with the original idea is that demo-itis has set in. So nothing sounds good but the original idea. If you've listened to your demo too much or played a song for too long before going through the drafting process, you'll be more prone to liking your initial demos. I find it important once there's a good skeleton for your song, you should get feedback and start drafting as fast as possible. Blame the head. One of the strongest culprits for the first idea being the best idea is some musicians can't help but let their heads wreck a good idea. They get inspired by an idea instead of retaining it for the right time, they use it immediately on the song they're presently working on, whether it works with the intent of the song or not. For example, they'll be working on a heartfelt acoustic ballad, and the bassist will hear LCD sound systems dance yourself clean and decide to force this idea on this tear-jerking sad song. They're convinced that arpeggiated synth bass will enhance the song instead of considering the other 11 songs being worked on to find a more appropriate fit for this idea. When the other collaborators hear this idea, it's immediately rejected, so the original demo is kept since this inappropriate inspiration is far from being emotionally in line with the song as can be. Confirmation bias. The other reason artists trust their first instinct is it's easy to count to one. If your eighth draft is normally the one that's best, you're less likely to count that high, whereas it's very easy to notice when the first idea stands the test of time. You think your first idea is always best, so you'll notice it constantly, but you don't keep an accurate count when it's a later revision. Your first draft being daring enough. B.J. Novak, an actor and writer on the show The Office, the U.S. version, talks about how the show would employ a blue sky period in which no one was allowed to criticize one another's ideas no matter how crazy they were. For the first four weeks of writing any season, the writers would be challenged to dream up the craziest scenarios possible to then have them be dialed into a digestible form for a primetime viewing audience. Adam McKay, director of The Big Short and Anchorman, employs the same technique. In music, it's not often said that you should go too far with your ideas and then take them to a more rational and considered place. You may be wondering, what does too far look like? Perhaps it's making the solo of the song excessive or experimenting with multiple ideas for harmonies to then figure out what's great along with what's too much. It could even be setting the mark to do better than the ideas you're inspired by, not just getting to their level. Developing songs emotionally. The alignment of lyrical emotion with music. The decisions made to further a song's emotional resonance can be difficult to match with the emotion you intend to convey. The most common pitfall of this task is that a set of emotional lyrics are poorly matched to music that doesn't convey the same emotion as the lyrics are conveying. When a songwriter is limited in their output, they may only have a few skeletons to match to a set of lyrics. Finding this match is one of the most important considerations of making your music as resonant as possible. While having a hauntingly dark lyrical premise matched with gleeful music can be good fun, more songs suffer from a bad match of lyrics and music than is often discussed. If you pull 10 songwriters on whether they write lyrics first and music second or vice versa, you'll usually end up with an even split. You'll then even get a few who come up with a song title and try to make the lyrics or music fit to the next, or even do both at once. How you get there is a personal preference, but making sure that the two are acting as one is the most important part of actualizing emotionally resonant music. In an interview I did with Ezra Kyra of Morning Glory, he talked about his inability to force a song. He talks about how every lyric set has a perfect match for each song emotionally. He says he has to write music and then find the lyrics that pair perfectly with it. Finding this pairing and being patient for it is crucial to the process. Some songwriters may find this match instantly. If it doesn't come, settling for a music and lyric pairing that doesn't fit emotionally is the death of a song's potency. Emotional elaboration. One of the toughest parts about executing a song properly is figuring out what to add to it. When there's intent behind your music, it actually becomes easier to elaborate upon your skeleton. By narrowing the options of what can be done to specific emotions, you gain an added focus. When considering options for a song, it can be helpful to consider options that go with the emotional imagery you're trying to convey. If you're trying to convey extreme loneliness in a song, having a doubled vocal or a gang vocal or another person singing can feel less lonely from the imagery it invokes. Conversely, a reverb that mimics being alone in an empty bedroom can take this imagery further. If you want that song to be lonely but comforting at the end of the song, introducing that gang vocal or duet can convey the imagery of no longer being alone. Delving deeper to find out how to elaborate on an emotion is often about how you find the attributes that give your song even more of the emotion you want to convey. If you make a throwback blues music recording in a prestige studio, this is the opposite of this practice. Instead, record in a dusty old shack where you can hear an old, digi-sounding room tone that can help further that image. In dance music, they'll put in the sounds of partying to get more of the party vibe. My favorite use of this is the first Basement Jacks record. Justin Meldell Johnson said this of producing MA3's highly influential record, Hurry Up We're Dreaming. We were always looking for an emotional reason for doing something, so the production was always informed by an emotional choice. At one point in the record, an example of doing it from an emotional standpoint and having that be the generator of ideas, when we were overwhelmed by what we had to do, we went down to the craft store and got these huge pieces of paper, and on the paper we lay out these inspirational touchstones that relate to the song, such as pieces of prose or a picture, the names of movies or records, and they would get added gradually as time goes on. It's this collage of childlike guidances and reference source material. This is a perfect example of emotional elaboration leading to a highly emotional record. Accumulating subtle details that complement the emotion you are trying to convey, like stacking up small pieces of hay that build to a haystack, is how a song that's highly resonant is built. With each detail you can find that can help paint a clearer picture of the emotion you're trying to convey, the more resonant the song becomes. One of my favorite ways to get more emotional resonance is to think of 10 questions to ask about a song. This helps us develop ideas on what choices we can make in line with the song's emotional content. Recently, when working on a song about losing one's mind, we decided to evoke a chaotic sound where sounds sneak up on you, so you feel disorientated. Here's a few questions we asked along with the answers we came up with. Question, what vocal sounds would be in the background of a crazy person's mind? Answer, yelling hey at random times that are very close to the end of verse lines. Question, how does crazy sound rhythmically? Lots of parts, with double whole notes and then sudden 32nd notes at times. Random bars that change time. What does crazy sound like dynamically? Answer, loud at very random points with quiet. Question, what does crazy sound like tonally? Answer, big contrasts of bright to dark, so we need to have parts that have a very bright and then dark EQ. Question, should the song end with resolution, or is it better that you don't know if you're sane again? Answer, leave it on a note that it's okay, but you could always go back. Emotional decisions in the most technical aspects of music. Many think that the emotional response you get from music ends with the musicians but emotional choices extend all through the recording. The compression ratio you use determines how hard a sound feels to a listener. If it's set too hard, It could feel emotionally violent in a gentle song, which detracts from its resonance. A microphone with less treble could calm a hard, aggressive sound, whereas one with a strong mid-range could excite that same sound. An empty room ambience on a recording sounds more lonely than a tight room that sounds in a vacuum. These details often get overlooked and kill the potency of a song in the recording process. Many internet commenters confuse the quote-unquote loudness war of mastering for being about volume, but really the pushed level of volume is an emotional choice. As the transients are clipped off a master, more information is pushed to the front of the stereo image. When this level is optimized in a record, it gives an emotion of more intensity to many listeners. If it's overdone, the recording becomes distorted while lacking in dynamics, which makes it unpleasing to listen to it and less exciting as the song sounds flat without the dynamic accents that bring excitement to the music. Finding the right balance for this loudness where the frequencies are excited by distortion or left alone to keep the sound pure is an emotional decision for those who understand it not one for competing to gain more volume. Being intentional in your creative choices. There's a moment in every project where a collaborator comes to a sudden realization, all of our songs blank the same way. When this happens, it's always a jarring moment, where collaborators are eager to fix the problem as fast as possible. The whole room realizes this flaw is undeniably true, so a change must be made. The most common instinct is whatever song is newest must change, but most often this is the wrong approach. An important part of drafting is looking at your creative body to make the appropriate changes to the body of work. It's best to figure out which songs of the group fall victim to this similarity, and pick out which ones are weakest to see if they can benefit from some further thought. This is why it's important to draft according to the body of work you'll be releasing. This is not to say that similarity should always be varied for variety's sake. A formula could be a style that works for a record, whereas other times it sounds monotonous. What would have happened if a producer told Nirvana that too many songs go from quiet to loud? Or if refused or Beck were told they were too diverse? A record's focus or wideness can make it or break it, depending on intent. What's crucial is the consideration of the similarity or variety to make sure it elaborates upon the intent. When explaining why The Cure's classic record, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, is emotionally all over the place, Robert Smith says, he likes records that take you all over the place, just like a horror movie will have comedy and sex in it. While many of my favorite records are diverse, like Prince's Purple Rain, I tend to find I have the most emotional resonance with a consistent mood, like Purity Ring's Shrines. Regardless, contemplating your choices with an intent allows you to make decisions that are in line with the emotion you you're trying to convey. When you hear that a musician chopped a great song from a release, it's usually because they're trying to conjure a mood that brings an emotion throughout a release. They want this release to reflect an emotion along with an idea inside of them. Sometimes a great song may be best to stand alone or see the light of a day on a future release instead of having it cloud a coherent emotion on a record. Do your tastes align with the record you want to make? An exercise I'll regularly do with bands is to have them make me a Spotify playlist of their 20 favorite songs. This can sometimes be too chaotic to include a whole band, so I'll try to keep it to the leader or two main creative minds in the group. I then ask for the five records they've listened to the most in their life. Often, upon listening to these examples, I'll notice these are nothing like the songs they've chosen to put on their record. There will be three feedback-filled noise tracks of screaming, yet none of their favorite records or songs have that. Even more common is all of their favorite songs have choruses that repeat, but they have countless songs with little repetition. This part of the process is not as much about making their record be a direct reflection of their tastes, as much as it is making sure they're considering their decisions. If the band's intent is to make a record that sounds like falling in love, where it gets pretty, and then sounds like a fight by the end, the three feedback noise tracks at the end of the album are very well justified. But if they want a record that singles front to back, it's time to consider writing more songs that are more conventional. This process vets that we're making a record that's more than, here are the best 12 songs we wrote, allowing reflection to make a record that they would enjoy. See it another way. Whenever we talk about geniuses, it's said that what makes them excel is they ask better questions than others. While this goes across the board no matter what field you talk about, with music, you hear great artists have an ability to see things differently than others. Producer Noah Shabib talks about Drake this way. Drake can barely tap eighth notes of a hi-hat on a pad, yet he can hear when a vocal is ten milliseconds off, since Drake says he hears the space between the beats, not the beats. Oftentimes, finding a different perspective on a song can lead to the biggest breakthroughs. Whether it's questioning sacred. Cows, Or asking what influences can you bring out to shake up the norms of the music you make. Figuring out how to question what you're doing in different ways can lead to more interesting outcomes. When trying to get inspired, one of the best tricks is to question norms. Does this chorus have to be the biggest part of the song? Is this song better played on an instrument you don't normally use? This rethinking of the boundaries can help you find the spice you need in a song to make it feel resonant. Focus and presence. While we talk about trusting your gut, at times you can't even hear your gut. New age hippies talk all day about being present, but it's a real thing. If you're distracted, texting on your phone, thinking about adult world responsibilities or anything other than feeling your song, you'll miss the gut alerting you to problems. When I began to produce records, I had a hard time focusing and self-misdiagnosed myself as having ADD. The truth was I had to get used to listening intently by exercising a muscle to get better at evaluating creative judgments. In time, I had no trouble focusing while learning to trust my lack of comfort when an element of a song felt wrong. The more you can focus, the more you're able to be alerted by gut impulses that can help actualize your vision of a song. While many use meditation to allow them to focus, that's not the only way to get there. Closing your eyes and putting the phone out of sight to give your song full attention while working is enough to get many in an attentive enough state to properly analyze a song. I also find deep attention to be contagious. The effect of having one focused person in the room gets even the least focused member to a more focused state. This is one of the most game-changing practices that allow emotional responses to dictate a record's choices. Analysis and drafting. One of the most important parts of drafting is that when you have a part of a song you love, you need to make sure that the other parts of the song live up to it. We've all known that feeling when a song has a great chorus or bridge, but there's a part that ruins the song as a whole. This part kills the emotion of a song, inducing a cringe when we hear it on each listen. Making sure all the other parts rise to the greatness you've achieved elsewhere is a crucial part of drafting a song on the macro level. Grading as means of improving a song. The job of the record producer gets compared to a book editor in that they'll keep the majority of your idea but need enough parts along the way. I find the best way to fix up a song is to grade it the way my writing teacher did. I'll first break the song form up into letter grades, assigning each section of the song a letter grade. If I have enough time, I'll try to get all the elements of a song up to an A+. But if there's little time, I'll work from the lowest letter grade on up to get to what needs the most work. If a part gets a D or an F, I won't make any more comments on it since it needs to be rewritten. A grade of a D means there's one element left to be spared that we could probably use to build off as we rewrite, but an F means the part needs to be fully rewritten. If a part gets an A, B, or a C, I'll further deconstruct the section to figure out what needs improvement. I'll zoom in on this as well. My first listen will grade the intro, verse, chorus, bridge, and A other parts as a whole. I'll grade every line of lyrics with an A to F scale. I'll do this on every beat, drum fill, section of the accompanying track, and bass. I'll then apply constructive criticism to each part, writing what I do or don't like about each part so we can understand how to improve it. Starting on the A's will guide me on what should be applied to the lesser grades, especially the F's, since by recognizing what's good about a song we could clearly show how to improve the bad parts. I do this all inside a spreadsheet that allows me to keep track of the consideration we put into the record. Pick one thing you dislike and voice it. Years ago, I was having drinks with a friend who worked at a major label who was being mentored by some of the top minds in A&R history. I asked what advice he'd been given. He told me that when hearing songs back, you should always pick something you don't like about the song and say that needs to get fixed. Even if it doesn't bug you too much, it'll improve the song. This advice took my breath away immediately. The idea of forcing yourself to find a flaw in a recording so your job is justified was both horrifying and enlightening as to why i fielded so many ridiculous requests from A&R over the years. After some reflection, I realized that with some tweaks this theory could be very effective. It can often be helpful to listen to a song while trying to find the weakest element so you can then work on strengthening that element. Our brain isn't always in an analytical mode, so if we consciously look for at least one flaw, it can help find an area of weakness. This doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be changed, but instead it will only be changed if you can find an improvement. While it shouldn't be mandatory to find a flaw while using this lens to examine a song, finding the weakest element of a song can confirm what the rest of the collaborators already know to be worthy of improvement. Of course, this practice has to cease at some point for a song to reach completion, but far too often we don't put on our analytical hat to try to find a point of improvement when listening to a song. There's more than one way to solve a problem. With every creative decision, there's usually more than one way to get to the desired objective. When a musician evaluates the mix of a song and wants to bring more attention to a part, their first instinct is to say, Turn that up! Well, this could be the right road to get what you want. Other times this results in a part that's now too loud, when turning down another instrument would have gained a mix with greater resonance. After all, if you turn every track up, you end up with a mess of a mix. When we analyze problems in our songs, there's usually a handful of ways to solve the problem that isn't our first instinct. Most musicians' default is to turn a track up, but turning down another track, EQing it differently, muting another part, or changing the octave that part is in can all get a result that'll make the desired part shine. There's usually numerous ways to get the desired outcome, so figure out if going past the obvious answer is the best way to a solution. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.